and welcome to the second of our podcasts on the, well, English Revolution, Wars of the Three Kingdoms, uh, English Civil Wars, whatever you want to call it. And this episode we're going to be looking specifically at how the war was won and what the political ramifications of that were. Agreed. Okay, so let's kick off with, at the start of the war, things are not going well for the Parliament side. No, the, it, it becomes very obvious after like, the first major battle of the Civil War, Battle of Edge Hill, that uh, Parliament's army isn't really up to the job. Yeah. It's a very, very close run thing. The King was only narrowly prevented from taking London. Yeah. And so questions were asked about the quality of Parliament's army in comparison to the King's. Because, you know, the King had an advantage at this point absolutely in terms of the quality of the soldiers that he had and, and it's experience the, yeah they're experienced leaders they're experienced soldiers they've been fighting in various wars around the kingdoms and across the ocean and also they've got better money better equipment mm-hmm. and i would suggest there's also as we discussed last lesson there's that slight feeling of they know what they're fighting for yeah they're they're fighting for the king it's a romantic cause it's a passionate cause more so, I think, yeah. than Parliament. Certainly at this stage. Yeah, and when you can, and then in comparison, Parliament's army is, is a lack of discipline. Mm-hmm. The people that are in charge, in the same way as the king's army, are nobles, but they often ignore orders. They do what they yeah. like. Uh, soldiers don't get paid re- uh, regularly. They're not entirely sure what they're fighting for. Many of these uh, conscripts, so they they desert as a result. Yeah, uh, and they have a lack of weapons, a lack of good equipment, food. No clear war aims. One, one, of the, one of the main people who's asking these questions is, of course, Oliver Cromwell, who's jointly in charge of Parliament's army. And there's a very interesting argument that he has with the Earl of Manchester. Mm. where there's a, there's a fantastic quote for it. And I'm not going to read the whole quote, but I'm going to paraphrase it. And He basically says, why are we fighting? Because if we're just fighting to beat him in battles, we can beat him a thousand times, and that's fine. But all he has to do is beat us once, yes. and we will hang. And so, what are we actually fighting for? And this comes back to something that I said in the podcast about the Pilgrim's March. And it's, again, the same thing we saw in the Peasants' Revolt. That if you're actually going to challenge the authority of the king, you have to have the wherewithal and the drive to go all the way and actually say... No, we are going to usurp him as ruler of this kingdom. Otherwise, what is the point? Yeah, and to do this, they're obviously going to need an effective army. Yeah, a new kind of army. A new kind of army, and that's where we get the new model army from. Yeah, and these reforms that are put in place it creates a large professional army, up to twenty-two thousand men at its biggest. Mm. Um, clearly. Uh, clear divisions, cavalry, pikemen, musketeers. And a clear understanding of the strategy and how yeah. you use those three groups together. Yeah, trained over and over, yeah. drilled over yeah, and over definitely. again. Um, it's well equipped, it's got the pay this time, and I, I suppose one of the most important things is that the officers there are promoted on merit. Yeah. It is a meritocracy as opposed to yeah. what the King's Army would become. And again, yeah, and that that becomes really key because these are people who will follow orders. But the other thing I find really interesting is the the slightly sort of Soviet approach of making sure that they're ideologically pure, that the men know what they're fighting for, and every regiment has a has a preacher attached. They've got a minister attached to them. Yep, and the rule book is 
is religious in its outlook. It is, well, and it's, it? yeah. it's the rules of the army are delivered through catechism again, which is I always find really strange that they dislike the Laudian prayer book because of this call and response catechism, and yeah. then they write their soldiers' catechism in the same way. Yeah. The two most interesting things for me from the rule book, from this catechism, is this drive, this idea that I am for the king and parliament. That we're not... It's the same thing we've heard over and over again. Yeah. My enemy is not the king. Nope. My enemy is the people who are leading yeah. the king astray. To rescue the king out of the hand of his enemies. Yes. Basically, absolutely. his advisors. Yeah. But it does say, of course, um, it's tucked away, because it says, if the king will join himself with them that seek the ruin of his people and the overthrow of religion, then we may lawfully stand in defence of both yeah and and of course there's this huge link to puritanism as definitely well. you know this strong protestant outlook this fear of of popish plots and yeah. the return to catholicism and of course with all of that rumor and uh the, the idea that the king is perhaps a secret catholic it, it just the whole thing it, it links together it comes mm. together to create this new model army. and it is a religious army it is a puritan army one of the rules is if you blaspheme You'll have your tongue um, hold. You'll have a hole punched through your tongue. So they're not messing about, you know, in terms of what they're doing from a religious point of view. So the, the first time it takes the field is Naseby, yeah. isn't it? And, and the training, the equipment, discipline shows its worth. Definitely. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, first of all, they outnumber the King's Army yeah. because they've been able to recruit. Yeah. Uh, in terms of its quality, it's better as well. Yeah, yeah and the, the king's army is doing that pell-mell the cavaliers charging willy-nilly and <clears> the roundheads as i suppose we can call them at this point yeah the new model army they hold their ground they advance slowly yeah. the pikemen supporting the musketeers yeah. with the cavalry harrying the flanks and, and the maneuvering as well is important as well yeah. you know the, the, this, this the traditional way of of push of pike is you go in one direction, isn't yeah. it? But the, the the new model army is able to change direction. They're able to outmaneuver the king's infantry. Yeah. Um, and I, it's worth pointing out that Cromwell is leading this. Yeah. This is where Oliver Cromwell, who's the uh, cousin of our old friend Thomas Cromwell, starts to come into his own because he leads them at Naseby, where they have a victory, and then they go on to capture Bristol and Oxford, as well in sixteen forty six. And it, it's not an understatement to say I don't think that the first civil war would not have been won by Parliament without the new model no. army. That's absolutely true. It, I mean, it, at the very least, um, it would have continued maybe for many, many more years and just sort of become this war of attrition. Yeah. But yeah, the new model army is the game changer. And then, so we find ourselves in a whole new game, I suppose, as you're right. It's a game changer, because now the king is imprisoned in London, and the country has been run by Parliament. In that sense, you can find a similarity with 1265 um, and Simon de Montfort, if yes. you want. Yeah. Um, there's a saying uh, from G.K. Chesterton, I've always loved it. He says, when a man ceases to believe in God, he will not believe in nothing, he will believe in anything. And the idea being that people's desire to believe will find an outlet. Well, you've removed the king 
and nobody's quite sure about how the world should work anymore. It's this idea of the world turned upside down. And suddenly you get this massive flowering of radical politics in this period, don't you? Yes, Uh, and there are many, many different radical groups, of course, who make up the new model army and the opposition towards the king. Do you want to talk about some of those radical groups now? Yeah, I think this would be a good time to talk about them because it's going to feed into the problems they have with the new model army later on. Yeah. So um, if we start with some of the smaller ones, then we'll build up to the big one, shall we? Okay. Uh, I think the key thing to point out here is that all of these movements are radical in that sense we've been talking about. They want massive change, um, and they are not supported by the Puritan leadership in Parliament or in uh, the army. Um, and certainly one of these groups gets massacred by Oliver Cromwell, as we'll discuss a bit later on. Uh, so if we start with uh, one of the smaller groups, let's start with the most radical, which is the Ranters, who are basically anarchists. They don't believe in any form of organised religion. They don't believe in any form of um, any form of government. And they're, they're, they're a very small group, and they're a very fringe group. But they are a fantastic example of exactly how radical this can get. And they don't get anywhere, because one of the major things you'll see throughout history is that anarchists can't organise themselves, because it just it just always falls apart. So uh, some of their ideas are picked up by the Seekers. And the Seekers are a very sort of communitarian little sect. And they believe that the church is corrupt, both the Protestant church and the Catholic church. And they're waiting for a new church and the arrival of Christ and some new disciples. So while that's happening, they do not have church services they have meetings. Uh, and they're quite successful in converting other people. Oliver Cromwell's daughter, for example, becomes a seeker. But what happens is a lot of the ideas from the seekers are picked up by another group, which is the Quakers. And a lot of the seekers are sort of absorbed into the Quakers. And the, one of the main things about the Quakers is, is equality, isn't it? Yeah. This idea, you know, even women should be treated equally. There should be no more respect given to any other group in society, which, of course, at the time, is an extraordinary thing to say. Absolutely. Um, But they've got their own style of dress to identify them as being Mm. separate from everyone else. Some Quakers even adopt a form of holy nudism, as they believe that clothes represented sinful nature of society. They would look at that, wouldn't they? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and the way way they speak to each other is very distinctive as well. But because they didn't believe in a social hierarchy, they refused to, like, perform some of the social norms of the time, like take off their hats to people who knew their superior, which people thought was very rude. If you want to see what Quakers wore, incidentally, um, you could do a lot worse than walk down the cereal aisle at the supermarket and look at the Quaker Oats. (laughs) It's a picture of a Quaker right there, so you can see this very distinctive form of dress. Yeah, and of course they're pacifists as well. That's yeah, the they, violence is wrong. They believe that prison should be reformed, less cruel. There's all sorts of things. Also, most of the laws of the land they don't really they reject them. Uh, one of the things they don't like is the tithe, the church yeah. taking money. Um, I think the most interesting thing for me about the Quakers is the fact that they are so inoffensive that they're allowed to just carry on their own way. And they're still there today. Yes, yeah. You know, you'll find friends' meeting houses of the Quakers all over the country. Um, President Richard Nixon, all praise him, was um, (laughs) our mascot for this podcast. (laughs) He was a Quaker. Not that you'd know it from the way he acted. (laughs) 
So they're, they're some of the smaller sets. So should we now talk about the, the big guys? Which yeah. one do you want to do first? Should we do the levelers first? Yeah. Because I think that they're so important, aren't they? Yeah. So levelers, man called John Lilburn started to write about the rights of soldiers. He noticed that even though uh, they were fighting for Parliament, very few of them were allowed to vote, for example. Yeah. He thought that all adult males should be allowed to vote. There should be regular elections. Um and this is radical yeah, stuff. It, I mean, this is this is stuff that's going to be treated as revolutionary in the eighteen hundreds when the Chartists yeah. are talking about it. And so, when he, he you know, in sixteen forty five, he, he forms this group, the Levellers, and the the clue really to their outlook is in their name. The idea that everybody yeah. should be on a level, and that includes women as well. Yeah, but they want religious freedom. They want the abolition of the monarchy, the House of Lords, and this is dangerous stuff. And it's yes. got. Opposition within the new model army itself. Oh, absolutely. Because when the officers hear about this, I mean, this is essentially their own class mm. being rejected by the levellers. It's important to remember that although Parliament is fighting for the rights of Parliament, they're not necessarily fighting for the rights of the ordinary well, man no, and woman. Of the poor, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're fighting for the rights of people like us. Yes. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're fighting for our people. Yeah. We're not fighting for them over there, the smelly ones. No, this no. is clear. I mean, the, the hierarchy is still there. It's, I suppose what it is is um, think of it in these terms: the the Puritans in Parliament do not want to turn the world upside down; they simply want to remove who's at the top. Yeah, that's right. And the Levellers are a clear threat to that. Absolutely. So Lilburn's arrested. It is released um, eventually. Cromwell agrees with some of his ideas, but the more radical ones, increasing the people who can vote, for example, it, it just can't. So Lilburn, as a result, starts to criticise Cromwell's government. And then when he starts doing that, he gets locked up. Yeah. And to be fair, he still gets off uh, more lightly than the diggers, of course. Mm. Now, the diggers regard themselves as the true levellers. That's what they say about themselves. Uh, they're led by a man called Gerard Winstanley, and they're very much about this idea of... They regard themselves as the true uh, levellers, and the diggers are very much about the idea of manual labour, yeah. of working the earth, aren't yeah. they? And the ownership of the earth. God mm. had made the earth for everyone. And that, we've heard that before, when Adam dug yes. and Eve Span, so who a, was then the gentleman. There's a link there, thread going yeah. through. So, yeah, so, so he creates this group called the Diggers, with the help of a, a man called William Everard, who's a former member of the New Model Army. They believe that the Civil War had been fought for free to people from this unfair mm. society, um, and that everyone should work the land together. Mm. A community. And that's very dangerous yeah. for those people who are landed gentry, like Oliver Cromwell, he's a gentleman farmer, who are used to having other people working the land for them. Yeah, I mean, and this is the idea is so far ahead of its time, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it seems almost out of place yeah. in the 1600s. It, it's like John Ball. You expect to hear it in the 1890s by some Russian exile living in Manchester. It's, it's not what you expect to hear. Yeah. So the the diggers go and they seize little bits of land, don't they? Yes. Yeah. And the, one of the the most significant is sixteen forty nine. They take over the common land at a place called St George's Hill in Surrey, and they sow the ground and they prepare it and they start their little community. And when Cromwell hears about this, he basically tells them that they have to stop. And in his own words, he said, "You must cut these people in pieces, or they will cut you in pieces," which is. You can't. It's clear what Cromwell's view is. These are dangerous people. Mm. We can't allow them to exist. They cannot continue because their ideas are going to overthrow the system. Yeah. So therefore, we need to get rid of them. And the army sent in. They beat them up. They take their houses. 
rip them down, they rip up their crops, destroy their tools. Um, and then within the space of a year, the other digger communities throughout the, the country are, are closed down and wiped out as well. Yeah. So there's no tolerance whatsoever for that group. No. And I suppose the core question you'd be asking yourself now when you're listening to this is why does this sudden flowering of radicalism happen? What is it that's actually given like the signal, fired the starting pistol and said all bets are off? And of course it's one very big event which proves that the previous natural order no longer applies, isn't it? We'll keep the suspense going a little <laughs> bit there and we'll, we'll move on. And we'll talk about... So that's all happening in the background. These groups are springing yeah. up during the war uh, and while the king's in prison. And as, as part of that, after the war, there's a very definite feeling that Parliament really wants to disband the army because having this army as a standing there mm. is a threat and it puts an awful lot of power in Cromwell's hands. Yeah, and it, and it served its purpose as well, yeah. hasn't it? And, and also, th- th- within the army, we've got these political radicals yeah. who have got strong views on how yeah. they want the country to be run. So there's, there's a lot of reasons, really, for the Parliament to decide the army needs to go. And there are some other practical issues as well. A lot of these guys haven't been paid. Yes. So the yeah. army's upset about that. They're up in arms about that. They want indemnity. They want a pardon for the crimes they've committed because it's a civil war. It's not like invading another country where if you're burning down a village, it's all part of the fun. No, this is this is the villages and the houses and the livestock of your friends and neighbours and other people. So they want a pardon for that. And then there's the big question, yeah. the massive question that's hanging over everything. Yeah, so what do we do with the king? Yeah, because he's there and he's locked up and he's under the control of parliament-ish, but... So they've got to settle these various arguments and the way they do it, and to be fair... It's a very modern way of yeah. dealing with it, isn't it? It is. They decide that they will have a meeting and they'll thrash it out in a negotiation. And these, uh, they get two representatives from every regiment and they're elected representatives and they meet at Newmarket to talk them through. Um, and this is where some of this level of taint, if you like, in the army comes through. Mm. Who should be allowed to vote? Yes. Yeah. We've, we've fought additional... on the side of Parliament. Yeah. Who should be allowed to vote? But of course, these talks drag on. There are further talks. Yeah. And these are the really famous ones at Putney, the, the Putney debates. Held in October and November 1647. Again, there's a huge level of influence there. Yeah. The debates rage and Parliament are concerned that things are getting out yeah. of hand. So um, they decide to close it down and they, yeah. they send the soldiers back to their regiments. And then Cromwell yeah. issues an edict to settle a question saying only property owners can vote. Mm. It's a reversal, isn't it? Yeah, now, this kind of. And idea. this is this is also about this time, around the time of the Putney debates, when Gerard Winstanley starts this little taking over bits of common yeah, the land. Diggers, is it? Yeah. And that again, the diggers are just another sign to everybody in power in Parliament yeah. that things are getting a little bit yeah. out of control here. We need to calm things down. Now, in the meantime, the person we've really forgotten about here yeah. is the king. Because he's not, he's not taking it lying down, is he? Being locked up. No, he's been writing letters to various people. Yeah. Trying to in, encourage the Scots to, to restart the war. Yeah. Um, on his side. And to be fair, the lever that he's using there is he's saying that Parliament has gone me out of the way. Where are they going to look next? They've got this new, big, professional standing army. They're going to look north. 
and they're going to come for you. And yeah. the Scottish Parliament has a fair amount of sympathy with that view. Yeah, and also there was a, there was a large number of people in Scotland who, who felt it was wrong that their rightful king had been imprisoned as mm. well. Because let's not forget that Charles Stuart yeah. It's uh, also, dynasties, yeah. It was originally the Scottish royal yeah. family, so there is a there is a difference of opinion towards Charles in Scotland, and he dangles a big religious carrot in front of them. Yes, so back to this Puritan and this yeah. Protestant, it's the Presbyterian Church, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he promises them that he'll he'll establish a Presbyterian Church in England, mm. and that's enough really to tip the balance. So the Scots rise up and yeah. they come south, and this is the Second Civil, Civil War. Yeah. Now. I said before, the Scots are howling barbarians and nobody messes with them, but this time they run into the jaws of the new model yeah, army. Yeah. And this, this, there's no contest. The Second Civil War is, it doesn't last long. It's no. nowhere near as, um, as closely fought as the first, and the king is just recaptured yeah. and imprisoned again. And, but the key thing is, he has proven mm. that he cannot be trusted. Yeah, that as long as he's locked up and as long as he's still there, he is going to be trying to defeat yeah. Parliament. And that's where you get a hardening of views yeah. against him. So those MPs in Parliament who were really vocal against the King, now they seem to, they've got this justification, they've got the proof, haven't yeah. they, that they can now use to persuade the rest of them, look, this guy, he cannot be trusted. We need a definite solution. And what is your solution? You could exile him. Mm -hmm. You could uh, strip him of his powers somehow. Um, but if you exile him and send him overseas... He's still there, isn't he? He's yeah. A, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation. He's a focus for resistance against yeah. Parliament. And if you strip him of his powers, he'll be writing letters, stirring yeah. up, what, the Irish next? Yep. He can't be trusted. So what option, realistically, do we as the hardliners in Parliament have? We're going to put him on trial for treason. Mm. And, of course, as we know, the punishment for treason, if he's found guilty... Is execution. But, of course, some of the MPs don't want to do that. No, but, you know, there was already a massive split. A lot of MPs who fought in the war, they, they, it's almost like they just wanted to teach him a lesson, to bring yeah. him down a peg or two. But this yeah, is going... Bring him to heal. Yeah, yeah, bring him... This is going far, far too far. Yeah. And so the opposition in Parliament against this treatment of the king starts to grow. And so the hardliners, they come up with a solution, don't mm. they? Because you can only put the king on trial assuming you pass a law saying that you can so you need a vote in parliament and Cromwell and Fairfax the leaders of the uh, new model army are aware that they do not have the votes so what they need to do is to find a way to keep the MPs who don't want to put the king on trial out yeah. of parliament and that's where they bring in a guy called uh, Thomas Pride yeah he's fought in both civil wars he's loyal to Fairfax and Cromwell and what Pride does is he takes his regiment to Parliament and he blocks the doors. And he basically vets the people coming in. Yeah. It's, it's in, like a nightclub. Yeah. Your name's not on the list. You're not coming yeah. in. Yeah, so Royalist MPs, certainly not allowed in. Presbyterians. Yeah, any high church, uh, yeah. Anglicans, you're not coming in. And it, it, this is called Pride's Purge because it is a purge of the members of Parliament who are regarded as politically untrustworthy yeah. by Fairfax and Cromwell. Yeah, the ones that they, they only let them in. The ones that they know are going to vote for a trial. Yeah. And because of this, Parliament is left with this very small number of MPs. It's <laughs> the end of the long Parliament, yeah. and so it becomes known as the rump Parliament. Yeah, it's as the, in what's left. Yeah, the bit that's left over. 
Um, so they get their trial that they've asked for, and then it's organised and arranged. And there are 135 commissioners who are brought in. Safety mm. in numbers, you see. Yeah. If there's 135 men sitting in judgment on the king, no one person can be held responsible. But as it always comes down to it, quite a few of them bottle it at the yeah. very at the very end. Because let's I mean, let's be honest, this is the biggest decision that any of them were ever gonna make. Yeah. You know, going to war against the king was big enough. That was a, a dangerous enough decision to make. Yeah. But actually making a judgment on taking the king's life yeah. is far too far for some of them. So do you, do you want to tell us the, the actual figures? Yeah, only 68 of the 135 commissioners actually turn up, including, it has to be said, Fairfax. Yeah. The shocking. commander of the army, yeah. who's a commissioner, he doesn't even turn up, but... His wife does. Yeah, yeah. to support the king. Yeah. And is it a fair trial? No, it's absolutely not a fair trial. It's yeah, it's it's one of the worst examples of a of a one sided trial, uh, and you know by all accounts, Charles was very eloquent, very yeah. calm and dignified throughout the whole thing. So much so that it frustrated mm. the judges and it frustrated the members of Parliament who wanted to get rid of him because. He, for once in his life, he acted like a king. <laughs> yes, and this is it. Yeah. And he really does. Uh, here, at the end of his reign, for the first time, he proves himself to have some regal quality, some leadership qualities. Yeah. Because the first thing he does is he comes in and he simply refuses to accept the authority of the court. Yeah. Simply, by what right do you put me on trial? And he refuses to engage with it, um, which upsets Cromwell and everybody else. Yeah. They only summon witnesses who are going to speak, speak against, against him. him. Yeah. I suppose we should talk about why people don't want to do this. The fact that he's the king. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in their minds, it's, can't forget the religious point of this, he was appointed by God. And I don't think anybody doubts that. No. And that's not a question of doubt. It's the question of whether being appointed by God gives him the right to do whatever he wants. So for a group of people who are very religious... To find themselves in a situation where they may be going against what might be the will of God is a is a significant jump for them. Yeah. But it's the the ringleaders in Parliament, they push through this, don't they? Cromwell yeah. was heard to have said, I tell you, we will cut off his head with the crown upon it. So it's nice to see he's keeping an open yeah. mind for yeah. the trial, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> it's, it, it was never going to go any other way, was it? No. And then, of course, Charles is found guilty. Yep. And he's sentenced to death because there's nothing else you can do yep. when somebody's guilty of treason. And a number of men are found to sign the actual death warrant. Yeah. Under a lot of pressure as well oh, yes. from Cromwell, there's a lot of forced signatures on that document. Yeah. They and become then, known as the regicides. Yeah. The killers and of a king. I've got a little story to tell about them in the end when we get there. Okay. But at 10 a.m. on the 30th of January, 1649, King is led out to Whitehall. Mm -hmm. He's insisted on putting on three shirts that morning yeah. because it's a cold morning and he doesn't want to shiver. Yeah. He doesn't want people to think he's, he's afraid. afraid. And he goes and he mounts the scaffold and there's no executioner. Mm. The executioners don't turn up because they cannot find anyone who is willing to swing the axe. Mm. To this day, we still don't know no, they who it was. Masks, didn't they? Yeah. they were they who hid their identities. I mean, there's a rumour, there's a persistent rumour, isn't yeah. there, that it was Cromwell himself. Yeah. So go on then, tell us this little 
story? <laughs> uh, it's very simple, um, and it's this: it's Charles I is killed, and then, as you'll hear in the next episode, Cromwell takes over and runs his own con- his, uh, runs his own uh, government. Um, and about thirty years later. Charles II takes the throne. Yeah. And everybody oh, right. remembers Charles II as... The Merry Monarch. The Merry Monarch. Yeah, yeah. And everybody remembers him as drinking and boozing and chasing women and all the rest of it. But there's another side to Charles II that people don't always think about. Yeah. One of the best examples of it is that during the Great Fire of London, he's actually out there pulling houses yeah. down himself. Shirt off, with his brother, making fire breaks. Mm. But the one I always remember when I'm looking at these pictures of the Merry Monarch yeah. is I remember that in those 30 years between the father's execution yeah. and him taking the throne, and then after he's taken the throne... He never forgets, does he? He stops at nothing to yeah. hunt the regicides down yeah. and have them killed. And they... they it's, it's like Vladimir Putin today. All of these sudden mm. accidental stabbings and yeah. muggings and people dying in sort of like alleyways in Antwerp yeah. and things like and, that. And of course, you know, the surviving regicides are all old men now, yeah. so it's not a particular... <laughs> Dignified sight no. having these old men being no. torn apart. Yeah. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, he never forgets. But uh, he doesn't just leave it with the ones that are alive, does he? No, no. They, they, Cromwell. They dig up the dead bodies of the regicides who have already passed away, and they put them on trial. Put them on trial, For and treason. they execute them all over again. <laughs> <laughs> so, the big thing here out of this, obviously, we've got all the political radicalism, all the other bits and pieces. But the big thing here is this execution of the king. It's an incredibly significant moment, isn't it? It's a turning mm. point. Yeah. Because this really is the end of any gasp of royal authority. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, I mean, when you, if you put this into the bigger picture as well, when you're looking at the way that various social groups and various individuals, how their power changes and shifts through the Middle Ages, the early modern period, and so on. This is a full stop. Yeah. You know, the royal authority comes to a dramatic end with this. Because it has been finally sorted out that Parliament is is supreme to the king. The supreme power. And this is the end of the path that starts in 1215. Mm. With that first limit on the power of the king, this idea of the rule of law, that you are subject to the same laws as everybody else, culminates in the king being put on trial for treason and saying, you are subject to these laws. So when the king says, by what authority do you put me on trial? Ours, the laws. And that is the key thing. I think so too. So up to this point, the theme study is about royal authority. Mm. But I would suggest that after this point, it becomes about something else. If the power now resides with parliament... It now becomes about who's in Parliament and who's represented there. And it becomes that line that was in the last episode, no taxation without representation, it becomes about representation. As you will see with the next topics. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.